Amen. Thank you, Lord. That should always be our heart cry. Amen. That God keep changing our hearts that we be more like him. It's uh, That song was on my heart before they played it. I didn't know they were going to play it, but it was on my heart. I was just thinking of my favorite verse, and I know you often hear I say, this is my favorite verse, that's my favorite verse, but this is my favorite verse, 1 John 3, 2. We know that when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. That means that someday, some glorious day, when we see Jesus face to face, he is going to finish the work he has started in us. And, that, and that's part of the, of course, Jesus is the wonder of heaven. Jesus is the glory of heaven. Heaven's all about Jesus. But the next best thing is every single person you meet in heaven will be like Jesus, including you. <laughs> and I, I don't mean you're eternal or anything like that. He's the creator, we're creation. But I mean, you will have all the fruits of the spirit and all their fullness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. Praise God. What a day that will be. But in the meantime, while we're here on earth, we need to be right with God. Amen? And this passage in Jonah really um, brings that out because Jonah's uh his life is kind of like ours. It's a, a bit of a yo-yo. You know, we do so good, we cl get close to God and everything's good, and then uh, the circumstances in life, and and we slip back down, and then we feel so bad that we've that we failed him in some way, and we repent, and we go back up. Well, Jonah is um, has gone through this. He's a prophet. He gets called. He runs from God. God has him in the fish, right? And he's about to die, and he turns to God, and he says, God's steadfast love is so wonderful. He goes and he preaches to Nineveh. Well, our passage today is him being recalled to Nineveh, and um, it begins in, our passage is in Jonah chapter 3, 1 to 5. And before we read the passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord. Lord, thank you for your goodness that we've just sung about. Here. Your love is good. It's better than good. It's perfect. And your grace is perfect. And your mercy is perfect. We are so grateful. We're grateful for the word. We're grateful for how the word instructs us and how it does that work in our hearts to change us, to be more like you. And we're so thankful that day is coming when the work will be finished. But help us now while we're in that process, while we're on our way to that place. Help us receive your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So my computer turned itself off here. Hang on.
So let's go to Jonah chapter 3, and in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read the passage to you? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And all the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Amen. This is God's word. Well, I just really, I'm, I'm actually uh, working right now on chapter four, and uh, I just really have enjoyed going through this book, and I can't wait to get to the next one to get to the next one. But each one is so important, um, we're taking it in little chunks. And for those of you who weren't here, Jonah tried to flee from God's presence when he got the order because Nineveh was known to be a very violent city. Uh, they were great at psychological warfare. Um, trying to see if we... Uh, I'm not going to describe what they did, but it was so horrific that it scared the daylights out of their enemies, what they would do to their enemies, the physical harm they would cause their enemies, the suffering they would inflict on them. And so Jonah um, knew Assyria, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, the king of Assyria uh, is, is um, the, the king of the Assyrian Empire. And so um, he doesn't want to go because... They're Israel's enemy. And it's already been uh, hinted at by Elijah that they're going to one day take uh, Israel into captivity. So he decides, if Nineveh's that way, I'm going that way. So he books a boat to um, Tarshish, the opposite direction, way out towards the Atlantic Ocean. And he doesn't get very far until a storm hits. And uh, the sailors cast lots. They're up on the deck wondering who's caused this storm. Uh, they're a little more sophisticated than we are. They think that everything that happens happens because God allows it to happen. We've educated ourselves out of that wonderful truth. So here are these pagans knowing that God is in charge of everything. Jonah's in the hull of the ship asleep because he thinks, I'm, <laughs> I got out of that one, but he hasn't gotten out of it. So the captain give, brings him up on the deck. They cast lots to see who's responsible for the storm. The lot lands on Jonah, and uh, Jonah confesses that he has, he's running from God. And, and, and basically they're saying, um, it, the, an expression used all the way back in the beginning of Genesis, what is this you have done? What in the heck are you thinking <laughs> basically is what it means. It's not really a question you'll see in, in ESV. There's an exclamation point after it. What is this you have done? So Jonah says, throw me in the ocean. Everything will be okay. They throw him in. The storm stops, and the, and the mariners worship the God of Israel. They're Jonah's first converts. I don't think Jonah knew about that, but they were his first converts. And I imagine when that great fish swallowed Jonah, which was probably on the surface where they could see it, they had a great fear of the God of Israel. 
That would put the fear of God in you, wouldn't it? See that fish come up and swallow him as soon as the water went calm? Woo. But now in our passage today, Jonah's been puked up on the shore of Israel or Lebanon, somewhere in there. It doesn't tell us exactly where. And um, we'll, we'll read verse 1 again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So this, when it says the second time, it doesn't mean this is only the second time Jonah's heard from God. It means he's repeating the message that he gave him in chapter 1, verse 2. It's almost identical expression. He's getting what I call a do-over. Jonah's getting a do-over. And we're back to where we started. Jonah has taken quite a sin detour. And when we disobey God, we often take our own sin detours. Anybody ever been on a sin detour? I have. They're not very pleasant, are they? We miss the opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven. We substitute an adventure with God for our comfortable normal in which we feel like we are in charge. And we usually experience God's discipline on that detour. Now, the first word the Lord says to him is arise. I, I like to look back in scripture where certain words are used, especially the first use is, is very important, but he says, arise. And when you go back through scripture, we see that's the beginning of the command of God to Abraham to go and claim the promised land. It begins the command to Joshua to cross the Jordan and take the promised land. Begins with the word arise. And it calls us to get up, start moving, and see what God's going to do through you. Jonah's been awakened spiritually. And so he's starting to see things from heaven's perspective. He sees the great mercy of God that kept him alive in the, in the fish. Uh, two weeks ago when we did chapter two, we saw how the language there of his, of his song or poem in chapter two sounded like he was struggling for life during those, those three days he was in that fish. But he sees that God kept him alive through it. He sees that unlike some people, he's been given a second chance to do the will of God, to obey God's call on his life. Now, the text doesn't tell us about Jonah's state of mind, standing on the shore covered in fish, fish puke. I know some translations try to soften it and say spit or spewed, the, but vomit is an accurate translation of that Hebrew word. Did he say to himself, this is a great picture of what people are like when they're stuck in sin? Was it so traumatizing that it took him days to recover his composure? Imagine it going through that. I mean, he could feel the pressure that that song tells us. He knew he was in the very depths at the bottom of the ocean. He was probably, I mean, I'm a diver. I love to dive and you have to clear your ears as you go down. And he probably had to clear it and clear it and clear it. He got deep. He thought he was at death's door. Is he going to have PTSD dreams for the rest of his life? 
it seems reasonable, but the text doesn't really tell us. But I imagine that he humbly <laughs> preached the story many times during his life, warning people not to run from the call of God on our lives. And I can picture him sitting with groups of children who wanted to hear the story of the man that was swallowed by the fish. And him starting with, do you want to know what it's like to run from God's will? Let me tell you a story. It's probably his signature sermon illustration, but we're going to have a few more in the last chapter. Second chances don't always come, but they are more likely to when we're genuinely repentant. Now that doesn't mean nothing's lost. The mariners lost all their trade goods. They threw them in the ocean. Jonah lost his chance to deny himself and do God's will at the first calling. And Nineveh experienced three extra days of suffering in their sin. More than likely, Jonah lost many good nights sleep being wakened by dreams of giant fish. Second chances are not deserved because we repent. They're the gracious gift of God who understands our weaknesses and longs for us to spiritually mature. He desires our eternal good over our temporary happiness. And if that means taking us through a good scare, he'll do it out of his love for us. It's usually in those times of testing and hardship that we begin to seek God with our whole heart. Those times are when we pray the most earnest and sincere prayers, and we learn the greatest lessons. Jonah was getting recalled. You know, we see several people being recalled in Scripture. Uh, one of my favorites is Peter. The last breakfast was Peter's recall. Jesus spoke to him the very same words he did when he caught that first great catch of fish three years earlier, follow me. That was his recall notice. John Mark abandoned the Apostle Paul in the middle of a mission trip, but near the end of Paul's ministry, he sent for John Mark saying that he was helpful for him for his ministry. Thank God for second chances, amen? But that's not always the case. Adam and Eve didn't get a second chance to stay in the Garden of Eden. Sin can often irreversibly change our circumstances. When Moses took credit for bringing water out of the rock, he didn't get a second chance to enter the Promised Land. A prophet in the Old Testament who disobeyed the Lord was killed by a lion. He didn't get a second chance. So do not presume on the grace of God that he will give you a second chance. But when we realize that we have been given a second chance, we should respond with humble gratitude and be more eager than ever to do what he's directed us to do. And that's what we see in the beginning of this chapter after Jonah's change of heart. Jonah was to proclaim the message that God will give him. Hasn't given him yet, he will give him. Several times in scripture we read of prophets being asked to prophesy something and they respond by saying they will only speak the words that God gives them. 
Jesus declared that he not only spoke just what the Father told him, but even how he was commanded to say it. And while we may not be called to be a prophet, Jesus is an example for all of us to follow. His invitation to Peter is the same as it is to us. Follow me. And that implies increasingly being more like him. Yes, it's a tall order, even impossible, but we are to grow ever more like him until that day that I spoke of earlier when we see him face to face. One of those ways is controlling our tongues and speaking what he commands us to speak and do in the way that he would have us do it as well. You know, controlling our tongue is one of the, the most difficult transformations, according to the Apostle James. Jonah didn't yet know what his message was. He knew it was to cry out against the evil that had come up before the, before the Lord. That was in chapter 1, verse 2. But he still doesn't know exactly what he's supposed to say. He must step out in faith and not worry about it knowing that God will speak it to him at the right time. And the same is true for us. We might contemplate what it should be or what scriptures apply to the situation, but we should rely on what's given to us at that moment. It's God's message, not the message we come up with. That's a great problem in the church today, is pastors preaching their own message instead of the word of the Lord. This brings to mind the call of Abraham. God called him to leave his people and his family and go to a land that God will show him. He didn't say, here's where you're going to go and here's the route you're supposed to take. He just said, go. And I imagine he must have given him some kind of direction and Abraham took off by faith. Faith pleases God. Hebrews eleven six. Abraham went by faith, and that's what we are to do, to go by faith where he leads us and speak what he gives us to speak. You know, as I prepare a sermon, I ask God, please tell me what your message is from this passage. What do you want to say to the congregation? And when I finish the first draft, I go through it again and say, God, please show me what was of me as I worked on this and what was of you. What, what is your emphasis now, some pastors don't prepare ahead, and they say they're relying on the Holy Spirit. God will give them what to speak at that moment. But if they're preaching on a passage from God's word, that can be an excuse for laziness. We're told to study like a workman to rightly interpret the word of God. Others just read other pastors' sermons and paraphrase them. Now, it may be great material. I heard a great sermon this week, and I was really tempted to preach it. But it's not the message for today. Others just uh, use that other material, but if it's not what God wants for those people at that time, it's not going to have the effect that it would if the Holy Spirit brought the message. But we shouldn't think that this concept is just for preaching. It's for our daily lives. God wants to direct us if we'll just take time to listen for the answer. 
we daily operate by faith in what the word has declared. Some people say, well, how do I know God's will? Read the Bible, it tells you. It lays it out. And until you hear from God, just do what the book tells you to do. And if you need to adjustment, he's going to speak to your heart. He's going to put some kind of influence in your life, and you're going to get that little check, that, that little gentle tap on the Spirit from the Holy Spirit that says, go this way. And that's when we have to obey. Verse 3, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city, three days' journey in breath. There's some difficulties in the translation of this verse. I'll, I'll hit a couple of them. Jonah made a th probably about a three-month-long journey because Nineveh was at least 350 miles from where he landed. That would have been the closest point. If he was in down where he left from Joppa, it was 500 miles. So that, that's a long trip by foot. The Hebrew reads, an exceeding great city to God. I don't think that means that God was impressed how big the city was. I think it means that the multitude of people there and the suffering from their own sins was heavy on God's heart. It was important to him. We have hints like this that, that God loves the world throughout Scripture throughout the Old Testament. Three days journey in breadth in Hebrew is simply three days walk. It, it certainly took more than three days to get there. Some translations kind of imply he went three days to Nineveh. Uh, ESV says uh, the breadth of the city, three days. Uh, I tend to think it was probably three days to go around the city to preach the message. That 40 day is all they had. Historians believe the city's circumference was 55 to 60 miles, including the greater metropolitan area. Verse 11 of the next chapter tells us the population of Nineveh was 120,000. Archaeologists tell us that the, the walled circumference of the city proper was eight miles long. And the walls were 100 foot wide, and you could drive three chariots abreast on top of the wall, that 100 foot high wall. Very imposing. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah took a whole day's journey into the city, and then he began to start his message, start telling the people of Nineveh. 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The 40-day warning implies they have that much time to repent. Now, the Septuagint, um, just for an alternate thought, uh, we don't know for sure which is correct, that Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done several hundred years before Christ. It says, three days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So I don't know for sure which, if it was three days, then uh, that would add quite a bit of urgency to the message. Jonah probably spoke in Aramaic, the language of the people in his own language. There may have been more to the message, but that's the essence of it. We have an abbreviated essence of maybe all that was. The word overthrown is the same word to describe what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So basically, he's saying annihilated. We don't know if Jonah spoke of the experience in the great fish. It, it, if he did, it would probably reinforce his message. But in either case, it was the Holy Spirit who brought conviction that the message he was preaching was from God. And that's the only way we are going to hear God's word, is when the Holy Spirit touches our hearts and tells us this word is God's word. In verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. So the Holy Spirit's conviction helped them to believe this was the word of God. When we hear the word and receive the truth of it, the Holy Spirit has helped us believe God. And a change in our behavior should follow. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth throughout every status in the culture. The elites to the slaves. Now sackcloth is a, a dark uh, uh, clothing made from either goat hair or camel hair. It's real coarse, it's uncomfortable. It symbolized sorrow and repentance. Here are these brutal people who scare their enemies with their torture, who most people would have little hope that they would ever repent or genuinely be remorseful for their behavior, fully believing in God. But they, respond, they, they responded much better than Israel did at the time. The northern tribes were in idolatry. God was sending them prophets. They weren't repenting. They responded better than Jonah did. That kind of tells us that don't, don't uh, prejudge who's going to hear the word of God and who isn't. Amen? Um, I remember one time sitting in a Promise Keepers event, and the row in front of me were bikers for Jesus. And I had to kind of turn my eyes away from the tattoos on their arms because they, yeah. If I met one of those guys on the street, I would, I, I don't think I'd be like, hey, do you want to hear about Jesus? <laughs> they were scary looking dudes, but they were worshiping Jesus with all their heart. It reminds me of Jesus' condemnation of his ministry triangle. You know, the, the three cities in the northern Galilee that Jesus spent most of his time in. Matthew 11, 20 and 21 says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of the mighty works of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So let me look closely at Jesus' ministry and his teaching. We can see his concern was always for the whole world. During his first year of ministry, he went to Samaria, those half-breeds, half-Jews. They were the first to acknowledge that he was the savior of the world. And during the last year, he went to the Decapolis. He healed the child of the woman in Sidon and the centurion servant. He also taught that there were many sheep that were not of this sheepfold. Now, Jewish ears would hear, you mean Gentiles? Yeah, he meant Gentiles. 
for God so loved the world. Jesus' ministry was mostly to Jews until the last year of his ministry. You know, the feeding of the 4,000 was in a Gentile region. They were mostly Gentiles. He knew the religious pride and the false teaching had hardened many Jewish hearts. He could foresee faith in him being spread throughout the world, or as he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, to the uttermost parts of the earth. He knew that in areas without a strong religious indoctrination, his message of repentance and forgiveness by faith would be received. It would find hearts the Holy Spirit had made hungry for the truth. Jonah's experience was a forerunner of what was to come. But it was also condemnation of Israel. Jesus used the Ninevites' repentance to remind Jews of their need for it. In Luke chapter 11, verse 32, the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus was referring to himself. Jesus also preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The coming of the kingdom is a time of judgment. The prophets warned Israel that their desire for the day of the Lord was ignorant of their own need for repentance. Amos said, you know, you keep saying the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, like it's a, you want it to be here today. And then warn them what it would be like for them. This is why we read of the Apostle Paul telling the Corinthians, examine their hearts to see if they are in the faith. We ask Jesus to come soon, Maranatha. But if we haven't placed our faith in him and what he did for us, what Kip was explaining earlier, that simple trust that he died for our sins and conquered death, it will be for us what Amos warned Israel, darkness and not light. I remember a quote I heard about the coming judgment of God on America attributed to Billy Graham. And after some research, I find, found out it actually came from his wife, Ruth. Billy Graham had just finished a chapter vividly describing the sinful conditions in America, and he gave it to Ruth to read. She was very much sobered by the writing and returned the document to his study where he was writing. He, she laid it on his desk and said, Billy, if God doesn't come soon and bring judgment to the United States, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. I wonder if the words God would put in the mouth of a modern day Jonah would be like those he gave to Jonah of old. How many days does the United States have? Would a modern day Jonah give us a time frame or would he say we're already being destroyed from within? America is the number one exporter of pornography in the world. The greatest consumers 
of illicit drugs and sex trafficking. Politicians' greed and corruption is, is evident. Many of our big cities are in total moral decay. Some are like a war zone as gangs fight over turf. Our churches are splitting over the acceptance of the word of God. Crimes go unpunished and the truth is hard to find. And I don't mean to frighten you, but we do need to be honest about the degeneration of our nation and take a bold stand against it. Walking the walk and pleading, pleading for revival. God always holds us accountable for what we know. That's always a factor in his justice. How much do you know? Jesus emphasized this in Luke chapter 12, 41 to 48. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us all? And the Lord said, who then is a faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them the portion of their food in the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he'll, he'll set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master's delaying in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect and an hour that he doesn't know, and he'll cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but didn't get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who didn't know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The Ninevites only knew their, bar their barbaric behavior had come to the attention of God and that they were about to be judged if they didn't repent. At that time, the Uratu people and their allies had conquered within 100 miles north of Nineveh, which may have added to the urgency of the message. The rest of the chapter tells us how seriously they did repent, and that's the subject of next week's message. What would it look like if the Holy Spirit did in America what he did for Nineveh? Imagine everything shutting down for a month, not because of COVID, but because of conviction. All entertainment stopping, people on their knees weeping for the hardness of hearts, stores closed. We have nations threatening to destroy us just like Assyria did. We should be pouring out our hearts to God and reforming our own ways and praying that the nation realizes where we're headed if we continue to arrogantly defy Jesus. The effect of the day of the Lord on our own lives is going to depend on our personal relationship with Jesus. The judgment on nations depends on each nation's relationship with God. May God have mercy on us. 
May we become brighter lights in a nation that's slipping ever deeper into darkness. May we become prayer intercessors for the lost, always ready to give an answer to the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. Some people are of the opinion that we've fallen too far, that we've already squandered our second chance. But when I read of revivals, the great revivals of the past, that was the very mood in that day when God brought about revival. You see, revival usually doesn't come until things hit the very bottom. Only God knows the answer. But for you and me personally, I believe that while we have breath, we can always turn to the Lord with our whole hearts and ask him to revive us again. May our heart cry for ourselves and our nation be the words of the psalmist. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Amen. Joe, would you lead us in a closing song?